0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violet Podcast. Uh, Over the past week, we've been flooded with responses from you uh, and requests asking us to cover the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, As we started recording this, we realised that actually we had far too much to say, and so we've decided to split, for the first time, this particular issue over two podcast episodes. This is a topic on which there is a lot of emotion, a lot of history, and a lot of misinformation flying around on the internet. So in this episode, we will just be sitting down to cover the history of this area to make sure that all our listeners are equipped with a detailed and comprehensive time frame of events, and next week we will discuss the lessons we can learn from that, the myriad Uh, Sort of opinions and positions that people have taken on this particular stance, our own positions, and in terms of solutions and policies that would be helpful moving forwards, what we can do. A little housekeeping before we start. To maintain a neutral stance on this, when we discuss the area in general that might be known as Israel or Palestine to different people, uh, we've chosen to use the words the Levant or the Holy Land. Now, before anyone points this out to us, we are aware that both of those words come with their own connotations and don't necessarily mean the exact geographical area that is now taken up by the State of Israel, the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. However, we feel that's the easiest word to use to avoid having to qualify uh, whenever we say Israel or Palestine exactly which areas we mean and when we're talking about the whole geographical area together. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the episode. As we've mentioned before on this podcast, uh, nationalist movements tend to take particular views of history or take the history of a particular area and skew it in a particular way to put forward a particular agenda. So we think it's important to begin with the history of this area. Now one way in which histories uh, are often biased or skewed in one way or another is in choosing where they begin, where our sort of starting point is. As our resident historian I think that's the first question that you need to answer is when we're looking at a history of the Levant
1: where do we begin so in the in the Israeli or the the Jewish narrative in this the the story logically begins uh, with the founding of uh, Yerushalayim which is the the historical uh, Jewish name for what is now Jerusalem Um, and the archaeological record is a bit sketchy as to how exactly this happens Jewish kind of religious or foundation creation myths uh, suggest that the Hebrew or the Israelite people come like preformed uh, out of nowhere as God's holy people uh, but the archaeological record suggests they, they kind of evolve out of the pre-existing Canaanite population uh, because you can see in the kind of material remains uh, you have loads of pig bones and then suddenly, not suddenly, gradually over time uh, there stopped being so many pig bones in certain assemblages and you can see the origins uh, of, of the Jewish ethnic group and the Jewish religion. This this is a city which was founded around 1000 BC, give or take. Uh, it's where you have uh, biblical uh, kings or kings who I think appear in the Torah as well uh, and in the Quran, like um, Solomon and David or Suleiman the Woods. Um, obviously, the exact details of their life uh, can't can't be known in, in precise historical detail. But this is the kind of period we're talking about. Um, it doesn't go particularly well for the new uh, Jewish kingdoms or the United Monarchy. Uh, they are first expelled by the by the Babylonians uh, i think around the, the 5th century BC uh, and then come back under the Persians with the Achaemenid empire and Cyrus the Great uh and so it is it is a jewish state in control of uh the Levant uh, or that specific region uh, when we come to the turn of the millennium um but it is a client kingdom uh the Herodian kingdom uh, under the rule of Herod the Great and it's a client kingdom uh, of the of the Roman em- well, not the Roman empire yet but the Roman republic uh, and it's not it's not fully independent a bit later on when the Roman republic has become the Roman empire uh, there are a series of of clashes or conflicts between the jewish population and the Roman empire as the Roman empire tries to assert control over the region uh, that leads to several jewish revolts and as a result of those uh, the Roman empire invades and levels jerusalem destroys it completely Uh, Expels the Jewish population uh, and refounds the city uh, as a Roman city, Aeolia Capitolina, um, with no kind of trace of its former uh, Jewish history. The Jewish heritage of the area is also further wiped out by the Romans when they merge uh, that pre existing Jewish kingdom with the neighboring province of Syria and rename the entire merged province as Syria Palestinia uh, to kind of excise the Jewish traces of the region. So
0: That's the last time uh, before the 20th century that we have a Jewish majority in this area. But before we get to the Muslim uh, section of this history, we actually have a surprisingly long uh, Christian domination in the area, don't we?
1: Yeah, so when the Roman Empire takes over the Levant, it's not a Christian empire. It's still, I guess, what you would call a pagan empire uh, following the Roman religion, but with loads of other things uh, mixed in. Uh, and it doesn't convert to christianity um, until I think the, the 4th century uh, on a large scale and that means that the the dominant religion in in the levant becomes christianity and remains christianity actually up until the the 10th or the 11th centuries uh, so islam obviously arises in the arabian peninsula with muhammad in the 6th century and the uh, the early Caliphates, the the rashidun caliph uh, conquered the levant um in the in the 7th century but the area remained with a uh, a local Christian majority uh, until much, much later, the 10th or the 11th centuries, uh, even though it was under Muslim rule. It was uh, also in this period of Muslim rule in the area that the uh, the kind of symbolic uh, heart of, of Palestine, the Dome of the Rock Mosque on Temple Mount, was constructed. Um, and quite unusually for a mosque at the time, which if you look at the Umayyad mosques uh, in the region tended to be flat roofed with a single minaret, uh, it was a kind of round slash octagonal plan uh, with, a, with a dome. Uh, and the reason for this is because it was based off the, uh, the earlier Christian churches in the region, which were generally domed. Uh, you could also see that architectural influence survive in Byzantine architecture, uh, like the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Um, and later, that domed model became the the kind of dominant model for mosques uh, around the world as a result of Ottoman influence. Uh, but originally, the the kind of floor plan uh, of the Dome of the Rock Mosque is as a result of the uh, the kind of legacy of Christian architecture.
0: The next section of Levantine history, then I suppose, is is the one that perhaps sticks in the collective memory of Europeans the best, and which establishes in a lot of European minds uh, the the Holy Land or the Levant as a sort of centre of religious warfare,
1: uh, which is the Crusades. So, um, to give a very brief part of history at the history of the Crusades, because it is largely uh, tangential to the discussion we're having here about uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, um, it's, it's effectively uh, a group of Catholic uh, European, mostly Western European states, uh, plus the Orthodox Byzantines, trying to reconquer the Holy Land or the Levant and retake it from Muslim rule and return it to Christian rule, uh, although there were massive differences uh, and disagreements about who exactly should get to rule it. Um, These were intermittently successful at some points. You have Crusader states or kingdoms established uh, around Jerusalem and what's now modern Lebanon and Syria, uh, and you still have a load of crusader castles lying around the countryside um but ultimately they were unsuccessful uh, the crusader states were uh, were destroyed and uh, the crusading uh, political class was was expelled uh, largely this wasn't because they had given up on the idea of of crusades or were no longer religiously committed to it uh, but just because europe became so politically fractured um, that it was impossible to grab together enough people to do it uh, and the kind of Fourth Crusade is one good example of it where the Venetians try to go to the to the Holy Land and kind of get distracted on the way and sack uh, Constantinople, the Byzantine capital instead So after the failure of the
0: Crusades we then have a fairly long uninterrupted period of Muslim rule Yeah,
1: so in uninterrupted in the sense that they're all Muslim uh, but not in the sense that it's the, the same empire so it does bounce around quite a few different empires uh, in the first half of the second millennium uh, the Ottomans then conquer it from the Mamluks in 1516, I think, uh, and it remains under Ottoman control until after World War One. So there's about a 400-year stretch, uh, almost exactly, of Ottoman control uh, over the Holy Land. It is worth noting that during this time period, uh, the Holy Land was not seen as particularly important uh, and it was very sparsely populated for most of that uh, 1500s to 1900s period. It was a relative... Uh, provincial backwater Uh, obviously it had it still had some degree of religious significance uh, but nowhere near the importance that's attached to it today so before we turn to uh, the british occupation and the modern
0: day and jewish resettlement in the area i guess we should briefly discuss as we sort of lost the jewish people back in the roman era in this in this history uh, where they have been during this time and what has been happening to them
1: uh, at, at this point in time, after being expelled from the, the, the kind of historical homeland uh, in the Levant, the Jewish people had been scattered uh, across the Middle East and North Africa and Europe. And by the time we get to around 1900, whereas, which is where we'll start introducing the Zionist movement, um, there are roughly three distinct uh, communities of, of Jewish people around the world. Uh, and this is of course a simplification but these are the kind of generally accepted groups. Uh, So you have the Mizrahi Jews which are kind of North African and Middle Eastern Jews who after being expelled from uh, the Holy Land had settled across North Africa and what's now modern day like Iraq, Iran, Yemen um, and had founded you know communities which had roots by this point hundreds thousands of years old uh, and had become very integrated into those local areas. Uh, Secondly you have the Sephardi Jews who initially settled in what's now Spain and Portugal, Uh, but when Spain unified uh, and when Portugal became more powerful and they became a bit more uh, zealously Catholic in the 14th-15th centuries, uh, they were expelled from Spain and Portugal and mostly made their way to the Ottoman Empire, settling in what's now modern-day Greece uh, and the western coastline of Turkey. So that's the second community of Jews. Uh, Thirdly, you have the Ashkenazi Jews or uh, I guess what you would call the European Jews who after fleeing uh, from the Levant had ended up settled all around Europe, uh, often kicked out of countries or driven up by massacres and pogroms, uh, such as the York massacre in in, uh, England in the, I think, the early 11th century. Um, And because of these pogroms, uh, Jews had been moved around these countries and the Ashkenazi Jews by the 1900s were mostly in Eastern Europe. Uh, So places like Poland, uh, well, Poland didn't exist at the time, it was under the Russian Empire, but basically uh, the Russian Empire, so what's now Poland, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Central Europe. Um, So those are pretty much, uh, that is pretty much where the Jewish diaspora is in 1900.
0: So it's in the context of this dispersed diaspora that we then need to introduce uh, one of the most sort of controversial topics and most thrown around words when we're discussing uh the levant and this issue uh, which is zionism
1: so i guess the most neutral way you could define zionism is the idea that jewish people should have a homeland uh, or as a distinct ethno-religious group they should have a distinct political entity or state under their control that's obviously like the very baseline neutral definition but uh Clearly, many different Zionists and non-Zionists uh, have understood it in in different ways. Um, in the early days of Zionism, in the in the late 19th century, uh, there was, for example, considerable disagreement about where this homeland uh, should be founded. And loads of proposals were put forward at early uh, World Zionist conferences about whether it should be founded in. Um, off the top of my head, there was a proposal in Alaska. Uh, there was one in um, in Uganda uh one in kind of like a random oblast or province in in eastern russia uh and and of course uh, the levant or the holy land itself um but at the start of this there wasn't really a particular fixation on the levant it was generally the idea that jews had been heavily persecuted most in europe less so in the middle east uh, and therefore they needed a political homeland uh, or a state in order to be safe in the late 19th century uh because of the work of Theodor Herzl, the founding father of Zionism and the creation of a World Zionist uh, Congress or organization for the first time, you start to get organized alias or Jewish migrations into the Levant with the intention uh, of establishing a, a Jewish homeland. Uh, and this uh, this immigration is done with the full knowledge of the, the Ottoman Empire and the ruling authorities at the time. Uh, the land sales are voluntary and the settlement uh, is is again kind of Voluntary in terms of people selling land and Jewish people buying it um, The first few alias aren't really particularly successful because most of the Jews that have moved uh, to the Levant uh, With the intention of setting up this Jewish state Really don't have any agricultural or like technical knowledge um, So they're not very able to form self-sufficient communities uh, and loads of them ending loads of them end up just going back to uh, to Europe or wherever else they came from um, And it's also worth noting that in the late uh, 19th century and the early 1900s, Zionism is very much a fringe idea within the, uh, within the Jewish community. So, for example, in the, uh, in the late 19th century and the early 1900s, uh, the, the number of Jewish uh, immigrants moving from Eastern Europe to, to the USA uh, via the kind of Ellis Island Statue of Liberty immigration gate is more than 10 times higher than the number of Jews who are going to, uh, to the Holy Land. So it's very much a niche idea uh, within the Jewish community on a global scale. Most Jewish people still conceive of themselves as, say, German or American uh, or, or Russian, rather than as um, members of a specific Jewish state. So that sets the stage for the next
0: section, which is the first time that a uh, global superpower gets itself involved in this particular issue. But of course, we have to remember that in the early 20th century, that uh, mediating, if I might use that word liberally, superpower is not America,
1: but Britain. So the way that Britain gets involved in in the Holy Land uh, or in the Levant, uh, is through its conquest of the region in World War One. So, the Ottoman Empire joins World War One on the side of, of Germany and Austro-Hungary, uh, and Britain is therefore on the opposing side, and uh, invaded the Ottoman Empire via Egypt, uh, via Kuwait, um, and also a failed attempt on Gallipoli. Uh, but through this conflict, uh, Palestine, by the end of the war, was under British control. Uh, now, this is an exceedingly messy period of history, uh, and I don't think we have the, the time to discuss it in depth uh, in this podcast. Um, but there were a lot of disagreements between Britain, between the newly formed League of Nations, uh, between France, between the local Palestinian uh, community, uh, between the uh, the leadership of the Hejaz Arabs, uh, Hussein bin Ali, who had been separately promised uh, that, that region as part of a wider Arab homeland. Uh, there were loads of different... Groups and states and communities who, who had a stake to this land. Um, and at the end of these, these tangled negotiations, uh, what was agreed was that there would be a Palestine mandate established covering what is now Palestine and Israel, uh, and it would be ruled under the jurisdiction of Britain as the kind of League of Nations mandatory power. For those who believe that the entirety of the region of what's now Palestine and Israel should become a single state called Israel uh, under an explicitly Jewish government uh, and with an explicitly Jewish character, there is a misconception about this time period that Jordan was designated as the Arab or the Muslim portion of the mandate by the League uh, and the intention was to make the remainder of the entire territory, what's now Palestine and Israel, into an explicitly Jewish state. Uh, This is not the case. Uh, the League of Nations did not specify, uh, nor did Britain, that what is now Palestine and Israel should become fully Jewish and Jordan should become fully Muslim. Uh, Jordan was kind of attached onto the mandate as a as a separate kingdom at a later date at the San Remo Conference. Um, so you get a situation in the early 1920s where Britain is functionally in control of the Levant uh, and has the, the authority to to agree what is to be done with immigration and administration on a day to day basis. At this point, the vast majority of the population uh, is still um, is still Muslim or Christian uh, or Palestinian Arab, and there is a small minority of Jewish settlers. Something else, which is a very complex point, and I'm not sure I can articulate it uh, articulate it very coherently, um, is that in terms of identity, at this point in time, you you do have a Palestinian regional uh, identity. There are people in the region that identify as Palestinian uh, rather than identifying as purely Arab or no one really identifies as Ottoman anymore by this point in time. Uh, But there is a Palestinian uh, ethnic or national identity. The interesting thing is that this is not at the time completely disentangled from a Jewish identity. Most of the Jewish Zionist settlers who are coming to the Holy Land at this point still refer to it as Palestine all of the kind of posters that they create in order to attract or entice more Jewish settlers refer to the land as Palestine uh, rather than Israel. So they don't necessarily see it as a distinct thing. Um, And if we go all the way back to the roots of Jewish settlement in the area, Yerushalayim uh, 3000 years ago, um, and we look at the Palestinian national identity, which has emerged by the early 1900s, they are not completely separate things. Uh, the Palestinian national identity is the product of people who remained in the region uh, and for whom you have all of these different empires and cultural influences and religious influences accreting over time uh, to create something which is a new Palestinian identity Uh, and the Jewish identity uh, or the what we would today perhaps call the Israeli identity uh, is the product of people from that region who went all around Europe and North Africa and the Middle East uh, and kind of formed uh, their own distinct national identity. But they are not preformed, pre-created ideas. Uh, they didn't spring out of nothingness. They both have common roots, and at this point they are both still very tangled. Um, of course, we we don't rely purely on, on, on genetics or, or blood work or outdated ideas of race to define uh, similarities and dissimilarities. Um, but genetic studies have shown that Palestinians and Israelis today uh, are almost genetically identical in terms of uh, haplogroup DNA, um, suggesting this is not purely a case of Europeans coming to to colonize a region, um, and both of them have very similar uh, kind of genetic roots. They've just kind of taken different cultural paths uh, through two long millennia. And that
0: hits upon, before we get into sort of the creation of the State of Israel and and the 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 20th century processes that I think people would have expected, listeners would have expected us to discuss when we said we're going to discuss the history of the Levant. Um, Before we get into that, that gives us our possibly most important conclusion, which is that Israeli nationalism and the idea of of the Israeli state in a particular way and Palestinian nationalism and the, the idea of the existence of the Palestinian state in a particular way, as they both exist now, are not... Um, ancient ideas stretching back in time thousands and thousands of years at all. They are both relatively uh, new ideas. But, as we've said before on this podcast, all nationalist ideas, all conceptions of nations have um start points and those are gray they emerge slowly as all ideas do from societies and there's not necessarily a day on which you can say this nationalist idea began but what you can do is travel back in time far enough to see where that nationalist idea did not exist and then come forward to the present and see that it does and the um emergence and creation of these nationalist ideas should uh hopefully in listeners minds put to bed the idea that who came first or what came first is important um, when we establish not just that in this particular case Israeli and Palestinian identities as we know them today are sort of relatively modern creations but that actually any nation on earth, any group uh, any sort of ethnical cultural group whether or not that ethnic or cultural group has its own state or not um, has a surprisingly modern origin story Uh in which that nationalist idea comes to fruition and evolves. And that, viewed through this lens, the exceptionalism applied to the case of the Levant, both by a lot of Palestinians and by a lot of Jews, is um, not conducive to a solution, not helpful, and not, strictly speaking, accurate.
1: Again, to simplify a very complex period of history, and if listeners have specific inquiries, I'd encourage them to, to write to us, uh, and I can I can help out with more uh, more specific details of this but between 1920 and 1940 when Britain is in control of the mandate, Jewish immigration to the mandate does increase quite significantly. so in 1922 the Jewish proportion of the mandate's population is 12.9 uh, percent by 1941 it's 32.1 percent. Um, this doesn't mean that Jews have been killing off uh, Palestinian Muslims or Christians. Um, it's merely the case that Jewish immigration uh, to Palestine in this period far outstripped uh, the the growth rates in kind of natural population growth uh, for Palestinian Muslims and Christians. Uh, so there was a significant increase in the Jewish population in the mandate in this time period. Uh, the Palestinian Muslim and Christian population did also increase, but just at a lesser rate. Um, Accompanying this population increase, you had a lot of uh, tensions, uh, often exploding into quite violent forms uh, in this time period. Uh, For example, there were riots almost straight away in 1920, the Nabi Musa riots, uh, in 1921 the Jaffa riots, uh, in 1929 the the Palestine-wide riots, uh, in which you also had the Hebron massacre um, and killings of many uh, Jewish settlers. So, there is often a myth as well that before Israel was established, um, the area was was totally at peace, and you know, uh, Jewish settlers never killed Palestinians, and Palestinians never killed Jewish settlers, and this is untrue. There, there was tons of violence in the Mandatory period, um, both wreaked by Palestinians on Jews and vice versa.
0: With any sort of bout or period of violence, there are obviously many and, and disparate and complicated causes, but for that violence that you're discussing in in the mandatory period what what can we say are the sort of the main drivers
1: behind that in terms of the violence in the mandatory period largely the the, the thing that was different to the period before the mandate uh, was the increased levels of jewish immigration uh, and as we touched upon before this is because of the the changing administration of the territory uh, the fact that it had come under the control of britain as a league of nations mandate Uh, and because of the fact that the British government, through the Balfour Declaration, had endorsed the creation of a Jewish homeland uh, in Palestine, although not uh, constituting the entirety of it. Um, And Zionist movements took this as a green light for uh, increased settlement and increased immigration to Palestine uh, and moved to the mandate and settled there. Again, at this point, we're not talking about land grabs or forcible dispossession of uh, local indigenous Palestinians. Uh, we are talking about legal purchases of land and, and and legal settlements according to the rules at the time. Uh, however, this was widely resented uh, by many um, by many Palestinians who saw it as an attempt in the long run to to create a Jewish majority in the Palestine Mandate and use that as leverage for the creation of a Jewish state, uh, which they believed would then dispossess Palestinians. Um, this wasn't born out of pure pure xenophobia. Um, there were statements by major Zionist leaders like Ziv Jabotinsky, uh, who wrote the very famous kind of Iron Wall doctrine, uh, stating that that at the time uh, the Jewish people could obviously not dispossess Palestinians because they didn't have a numerical majority, but that they needed to settle peacefully, and once, gained, once they had gained a numerical majority, then they could do so by force. Uh, of course, that was not the position of all the Zionist uh, settlers, Many wished to coexist uh, with the Palestinians, uh, and of course, the hostility from the Palestinians was also not uh, universal. Um, the Nashashibi family, favored, uh, who was which was one of the major Palestinian families at the time, uh, favoured cooperation uh, with the Jewish settlers and some kind of joint settlement, whereas the Al-Husseini family, the other main family, uh, was much more hostile. Um, but it was largely the the actions of extreme. Uh, extreme individuals or extreme groups uh, on both the sides of the Jewish settlers like Jabotinsky and the side of the Palestinians like al-Husseini, which drove these escalating uh, kind of cycles of violence uh, within the Palestine mandate.
0: One of the difficult questions that we're going to have to uh, address more explicitly at some point during this podcast, and, and probably actually in next week's part, is uh, what sort of justifications there might be for violence, and where the line is sort of between explanations of uh, a particular group or a particular individual's rationale for violence, and whether we, sort of the two of us, but also society in general, uh, consider that that rationale to be to be uh, acceptable. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not I'm not giving any judgment on that, but it, it's worth pointing out then that the fears of those Palestinians who believe that. Jewish settlement may have been leading to the creation of a Jewish state uh, were actually realised.
1: Yeah and there are kind of differing historical interpretations of this um, so to again simplify, as we've said a lot of times this podcast, to simplify a very complicated uh, narrative or argument uh, one major school of thought is that the reason uh, we, we have the violence we have today and the reason that uh, the region was so badly destabilized was because of these cycles of violence. And in fact, if it were the cooler heads on both the Palestinian side and the side of the yishev, the Jewish settlers that prevailed, uh, then we would not be in the crisis that we currently are. Uh, and that it was violence that begat violence, for example, after the 1929 Palestine riots uh, and the murder or the massacre of many uh, Jewish settlers, the, uh, it, it was at that point that the Ergon, a more radical uh, faction of Jewish militants, broke off from the Haganah, the existing kind of Jewish defense force for Jewish settlers. Um, and so it's that kind of argument that as violence happened, it spurred further extremism and violence. Uh, and the other main school of thought is, regardless of what the Palestinians had done, um, that Zionist settlement would have continued, and it was with the ultimate aim of creating a Jewish state. Uh, and from my reading of the historiography, I do think it is that the latter that is uh, probably the more convincing, uh, the statements of the main Zionist leaders, not only the extremists like Jabotinsky, uh, but also the more kind of mainstream ones like uh, David Ben-Gurion uh, seems to suggest that there, there, was a, uh, there was a concerted effort to build a Jewish state. Perhaps it wouldn't have come about with such violence, but it would have eventually got to that point.
0: Coming back to the Levant under the period of the British uh, mandate then, there were considerable shifts to what we might call the balance of power due to both British colonial uh, sort of policy and demographic shifts during this time.
1: So as we've said throughout the 1920s and 30s, violence in the mandate uh, did escalate quite significantly. Um, And after the initial kind of riots and massacres in the 20s, it again peaked in the mid 30s, between 36 and uh, kind of 38, 39, uh, with the Arab revolt against British rule. Uh, and the aim of that revolt was uh, to to effectively drive out the British and establish a Palestinian state. Um, in the aftermath of that, which which failed uh, and was brutally suppressed by the British administration, uh, the the Palestinians were were largely disarmed. Uh, and as a further consequence of that failed revolt. Uh, the, the Jewish settlers were uh, were increasingly armed uh, because the British administration used uh, Jewish settlers as paramilitary and police forces in order to put down the Arab revolt. Uh, so that did seem to mark a quite significant shift in the balance of armed power in the mandate. Uh, during that period, Jewish immigration had also increased. Uh, there was a fifth Aliyah between 1929 and 39, uh, And by the end of that, uh, the population or the demographics of Palestine had shifted quite significantly. Uh, so as as previously mentioned, uh, by 1941 the Jewish proportion of the Palestinian population had risen from 12.9 in 22 to 32.1 in 41. Uh, in terms of the Muslim population, it had dropped in proportion from 74.9 in 22 to 59.7 in 41. Uh, and this of course did not reflect Jews killing Muslims uh, but rather a massive increase in Jewish migration. Uh, the Muslim population uh, or the the Palestinian uh, population of Muslims and Christians also increased uh, but at a slower rate than that of Jewish uh, immigration.
0: So next we should turn our attention to where histories of the Levant
1: tend to start from, at least modern histories do, uh, which is World War II. World War II obviously broke out in 1939, uh, and by the end of World War II, the pressures had quite significantly intensified in the Palestine mandate. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, firstly, as, as part of World War II, Nazi Germany obviously enacted the Holocaust in uh, occupied Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and had killed uh, somewhere in the ballpark of six million Jews. Uh, the survivors of the Holocaust um, were 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 kind of seeking some kind of safety and some kind of stability after the war, and it was often not to be found in Central or, or Eastern Europe, uh, because even in the aftermath of World War II, there were many pogroms. Uh, for example, in Poland, survivors returning from the Holocaust uh, were were massacred by kind of the the former uh, Poles who had lived in those areas. So. um, Europe wasn't a particularly safe place for the Jewish population and there was a massive refugee movement uh, which intensified the population pressure uh, or the immigration pressures on Palestine Uh, at the same time you had intensified demands for the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine Uh, and during World War II the main Jewish agencies or organizations uh, such as Haganah Ergun Lehi had had cooperated with the British authorities because at that time, obviously Nazi Germany was far and away the bigger threat uh, to the continued existence of a Jewish nation or a Jewish people. Uh, after World War II that truce came to an end uh, and one by one the Jewish organizations that had formerly cooperated with Britain began to break away uh, and began to launch direct uh, kind of terrorist or insurgency campaigns against Britain. Uh, the most kind of infamous was in 1946, where Irgun, uh, um, one of those Jewish terrorist or paramilitary factions, uh, actually leveled the King David Hotel, uh, the headquarters of the British, uh, the British mandate in Palestine. They bombed it, um, destroyed the hotel, uh, killing uh, quite a lot of British officials. They also began to, to rob uh, police stations and army depots, sabotage railway lines. Um, in forty seven, you had the kidnapping and the execution of two British sergeants. Uh, so this was a pretty concerted insurgency campaign uh, by, um, by Jewish forces, which, along with increased Jewish immigration, significantly increased uh, the levels of tension and violence uh, within the mandate. And of course, it's after World War II that we have
0: attempts to partition the Levant into different states based on religious lines in a very similar fashion to in South Asia. However, in this case, it's the United Nations rather than the British government that puts forward a plan.
1: Uh, So in the the light of this uh, escalating crisis and the fact that The British government is at this point investing more troops in Palestine per unit of local population than anywhere else in the empire. Uh, And given the fact that, you know, this Jewish insurgency has tried to assassinate Clement Attlee, the British prime minister, with a letter bomb um, and and all of the rest of this, the British government decides um, in kind of mid-1947 that we can't do this anymore. It's not worth it. We're not going to try and hold on to Palestine as a mandate. Um, It's it's not. Uh, it's beyond it's beyond our powers to to solve this situation. Uh, Borrowing, of course, the fact that British administration in the 20s and 30s had significantly contributed to those escalating ethnic tensions, and they decided to hand over the mandate to the newly created United Nations, who would decide uh, what should be done with it. Uh, and the United Nations therefore came up with a partition plan. Uh, the partition plan, which was published in September 47, uh, said that Palestine should become independent and it should be partitioned into one Jewish state and one Arab state. Uh, the Jewish state would comprise about 55% of the land, uh, the Arab or the Palestinian state would comprise about 45% of the land. Uh, in terms of the population distributions within those proposed states, um, the Jewish state would have a substantial Arab minority, uh, and this was necessary said the UN uh, because the Jewish state would need to include as many Jewish settlements within the mandate as possible. Um, so within the proposed Jewish state, 45% of the population would actually have been Arab. Uh, within the proposed Arab state, 99% of the population would have been Arab or Palestinian uh, and there would only have been about 10,000 Jews or about 1% uh, of the population of that territory. Uh, Jerusalem which was of course very contested between both the Palestinians and the Jewish settlers uh, both claiming it as a as a major cultural spiritual religious center Uh, the Jews because of the remnants of of Temple Mount uh, or the remnant of Solomon's Temple um, and the the Palestinians uh, because of the fact that Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the the Rock Mosque are there uh, and also the Church of the Holy Sepulchre which is where uh, Jesus is said to have ascended into heaven uh, in the Christian tradition. So Jerusalem was assigned a special status in this partition plan where uh, it would be neither Palestinian uh, nor part of the Jewish state, but it would become an international city under UN jurisdiction, uh, kind of owned collectively by, by everyone in the world uh, to kind of diffuse these, these tensions. I
0: guess the obvious and personal question to ask at this point then is to what extent those plans were accepted or deemed acceptable by the parties involved uh, at
1: the time. The distributions or the territorial and population distributions uh, of the proposed Jewish and uh, Palestinian states in the UN Partition Plan uh, are of course deeply controversial, uh, firstly because whilst uh, the Jewish population in the Palestine Mandate was you know, less than half, they got over half the land in the Partition Plan. Uh, and the other controversy is obviously the fact that within the borders of the proposed Jewish state, you would have a substantial uh, Arab minority living under under Jewish rule. Um, the first of those criticisms, I think, is probably less directly pertinent because a lot of the land that was assigned to the Jewish state uh, wasn't particularly fertile or arable. Uh, or kind of good quality, a lot of it was actually the Negev desert. The more serious criticism is, I think, the fact that a substantial Arab minority would have been forced to live uh, within the boundaries of the Jewish state or otherwise forced to move. Uh, and this has this has very much echoes of partition uh, in India, which happened around the same time, uh, and the, the kind of forcible population transfers of people between the newly created India and Pakistan as, you know, um, non-muslims sought to to escape living under the rule of a Muslim state, and Muslims sought to live uh, sought to to avoid uh, living under a a non-muslim state and the the kind of violence that accompanied that displacement. Um so the partition plan is controversial for those reasons. Uh, for for the Yishuv or the Jewish community, it was broadly accepted because even though it didn't give them the full scope or boundary of a Jewish state they they had wanted, It was still a Jewish state um, and it was largely rejected by the Palestinians who saw it as some combination of the UN and Britain uh, and the USA, which was very influential in the UN, uh, to to give away Palestinian land uh, that did not belong to them uh, and furthermore to give it away uh, in in proportions that exceeded uh, the actual proportion of Jewish settlers in the Palestine mandate uh, population.
0: And I'm sure we'll come back to the UN Partition Plan um, at various points, either in this podcast or in the next section, but the extent to which it actually matters and the extent to which it means anything is its own interesting sort of uh,
1: case in international law, given that it never actually came to be. So the UN Partition Plan was, was adopted uh, on November or in November 1947, Uh, 33 states voted for it uh, 10 abstained and 13 voted against Uh, quite interestingly is the fact that Britain had no intention of implementing the plan uh, and announced it would quit Palestine uh, by mid-May 48 uh, but did not vote against the plan, they abstained Um, they they didn't veto it even though they were a member of the Security Council uh, so as to preserve the relationship with the USA uh, because the US President at the time, Truman, was a very uh, committed Zionist Immediately after after the passing of the plan, uh, and at this time the Palestine Mandate is still under British authority until forty eight, until the date the plan is supposed to come into effect, a brutal civil war broke out within Palestine uh, between, on one hand, the Yishuv, uh, the Jewish community, and on the other side, the Palestinians, uh, who were assisted by Jordan and Syria. And during that war, uh, there were there were numerous civilian massacres uh, at Deir Yassin, where Irgun and Lehi, the Jewish paramilitary forces. Uh, killed somewhere around 120 Arab civilians just west of Jerusalem um, and then at Hadassah where Arab forces ambushed a medical convoy uh, and killed about 79 Jews. Um, During this time period the Palestinian forces aided by Jordan and Syria uh, also attempted to blockade the Jewish portion of Jerusalem and effectively lay siege to it and starve them out. Um, But this didn't quite work. Uh, by the end of the civil war, the Yishuv had been able to survive and strengthen its position. Um, and during the, the the period of this uh, this civil war, uh, they expelled approximately uh, 750,000 Palestinian Arabs uh, from territory which had been gained by Jewish forces in that civil war. Um, and that that event and um, kind of further expulsions in the aftermath are known as the Nakba or the catastrophe. In Palestinian history um, and has has been described uh, I think fairly accurately as as an ethnic cleansing. Uh, The Yishuv position was that well these are the borders of the Jewish state working out Palestinians because these are Jewish areas uh, and has has since forbidden uh, Palestinians to to return to their homes uh, that they were dispossessed from. Uh, Although it has then encouraged uh, Jewish people from around the world to emigrate to Israel and and claim a right to return uh, and claim those homes which were dispossessed from Palestinians. Um, Britain generally adopted a hands-off approach at this point, um, contrasting with the earlier actions in the um, in the Arab Revolt in '36, where they very brutally suppressed it. Uh, at this point, Britain did not intervene really on either side, uh, although there were informal British involvements on on both sides of the conflict. Uh, for example there were a lot of british officers uh, serving in the the arab legion the jordanian forces uh, which were led by uh, john glubb or john glubb pasha uh, and kind of turkish arab honorific um and there were also loads of british volunteers on the yishuv side of the conflict by mid may 48 the yishuv had gained control of pretty much all of the area that had been assigned to them by the UN plan uh, and linked together most of those disparate Jewish settlements into a more uh, cohesive territory. Uh, And this was possible uh, because Haganah, the Jewish militia, had been built uh, from that kind of ragtag militia into a modern uh, military force within months, uh, largely because of significant international support. Uh, So Goldemir, a future prime minister of Israel, Uh, traveled to the USA and managed to raise about 50 million dollars from the American Jewish community for this purpose. When the uh, British mandate expired and Britain uh, formally ceased to control the mandate, uh, within the boundaries of what had been assigned to them by the UN Partition Plan, the Jewish community, the Yishuv, declared the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, And immediately following this, uh, neighboring Arab states, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, aided by Iraq and Saudi Arabia, uh, invaded uh, the newly created Israel uh, in 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 order to to eliminate it, claiming that the UN partition plan was illegitimate and that the newly created Israel had no right to the land. Um, by the end of '48, Israel had managed to fight off uh, those invading Arab armies and had managed to to establish the borders uh, of the state of Israel, which were broader than those assigned to it by the partition plan. Uh, so they retained all of that initial area, uh, but also had conquered a lot of land, which was assigned to the Palestinian state, and from that land uh, expelled the Palestinian families that were living there. So this is the first kind of major controversy in terms of um, the, the legitimacy of of Israel's existence or borders. So if we are if we are kind of going by the the position that what the UN says is internationally legally binding. Uh, and that does seem to be the position of most people who refer to UN criticisms of uh, of Israel as, as legally binding, then Israel does uh, have a legal right to exist, so to speak. Um, but by the end of 1948, uh, it had already exceeded uh, the borders which were legally assigned to it by the UN uh, and conquered significant Palestinian territories. Another thing which is interesting and worth noting about this period of conflict, is that at the end of the of the war, uh, Israel still did not control all of the territory it has today. So the Gaza Strip, um, or what is now the Gaza Strip, was annexed or taken over by Egypt, Uh, and the West Bank was annexed or taken over by Jordan, uh, including East Jerusalem, the uh, the portion of Jerusalem which contains the Old City and Temple Mount and all the kind of important religious and historical sites. So there was at this point an opportunity to create a Palestinian state uh, because Israel did not control the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, they were controlled by Jordan and Egypt respectively, uh, but because of their own political interests, Uh, Jordan and Egypt, instead of creating a Palestinian state uh, within those territories, instead decided to to take them for their own.
0: A message we end up reiterating a lot in this podcast is about uh, viewing individual groups and individual people uh, as distinct and not lumping them together unduly into into, uh, sort of supergroups or assuming that all members of uh, of a group will act in a similar way or, or are similarly guilty or innocent. And In many ways that's the central message I think of this particular episode and of this particular issue and something you've said there which highlights that is that mistreatment, oppression, invasion and conquest of uh, Palestinians is definitely something that's happened throughout history but is not something that is purely a uh, Jewish prerogative but actually some of the area uh, divided by the UN partition plan for Palestinians was occupied not by an Israeli state but by um, Arab
1: Muslim states as well. Following the the conflicts in 4748 the establishment of a state of Israel uh, the non-creation of a state of Palestine um, because of Egypt and Jordan annexing those those respective territories uh, you had further expansions of Israeli territory uh, or Israeli borders within the area of the Levant uh, as a consequence of future conflicts. In 1967, the Six-Day War happens, uh, in which, as the name suggests, it's a very short Six-Day War. Uh, Israel annihilates the the Arab uh, air forces in surrounding areas uh, and expands its borders quite significantly, uh, taking the Golan Heights from Syria. Uh, taking the West Bank and East Jerusalem from uh, from Jordan, taking the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. Um, so this this was a war that was in the strictest sense of the word started by Israel, uh, in that they preemptively destroyed the Arab air forces, claiming that uh, an invasion was imminent, and they were acting in order to safeguard their borders. In 1973. Uh, there was a, uh, a retaliatory attempt by the Arab states to recapture their territory, uh, the Yom Kippur War, which was launched as a surprise attack uh, on the one of the holiest Jewish uh, holidays, uh, when they believed that Israel would be relatively unprepared. And Israel was relatively unprepared, uh, but still managed to uh, to kind of scrap together uh, a defence uh, of its territory. And at the end of this war, uh, Israel retained uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Uh, and Gaza as occupied territories, as well as the Golan Heights, which I had captured from Syria in the previous 67 war, um, but returned the Sinai Peninsula uh, to Egypt in exchange for a peace deal uh, with the then Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat. Uh, and Sadat was later assassinated by, um, uh, by, by people in Egypt who, who thought that he had effectively betrayed Egypt uh, by signing a peace deal with Israel. Um, at the same time, uh, Israel began to to normalise diplomatic relations uh, with with Jordan uh, and establish a, a slightly more peaceful coexistence. Um, this is where we get to the kind of the controversy of of borders and Palestinian territory and Israeli territory today, uh, because the the West Bank and the Gaza Strip were very clearly not allotted to Israel in the original uh, forty seven partition plan, uh, and they were they were occupied by Israel as a result of the, the 67 and 73 wars. Um, Israel has never or Israel has not formally claimed that those areas are, are part of Israel. Uh, they, are, they are classified as occupied territories or um, by, by some in Israel as Judah and Samaria, the kind of ancient historic Jewish name uh, for for that region in the West Bank and of course um, separately Gaza. Um, But despite the fact that these are not internationally recognized parts of Israel uh, and despite the fact that they are deemed uh, occupied territories, uh, Israel has extended a lot of Jewish settlements into that region, um, which would appear to be in violation of international law uh, about transferring your own population into occupied territories. Uh, The reason being, if you significantly shift the demographics of an area, uh, you're, you're effectively ethnically cleansing it and making it uh, making it yours in the future by replacing the indigenous population with, with your population. Um, so since uh, seventy three, the number of Israeli settlements in the West Bank has grown quite significantly. Uh, I believe at the latest count, uh, according to official figures from the Israeli ministry, which oversees settlements in the West Bank, uh, there are 400,000 uh, settlers in the region which is classified as occupied Palestinian territory. Uh, plus a further two hundred thousand in East Jerusalem, and since seventy-three, there have been uh, attempts at at creating some kind of solution, uh, or or in some way solving or resolving the boundary disputes. Um, most notably, the Oslo Accords in the in the nineteen nineties, uh, which were signed between the Israeli Prime Minister. Um, Rabin and the uh, the Palestinian leader, or the leader of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, those infamously collapsed when Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing uh, Israeli um, terrorist who who argued that he was selling out Israel uh, to the Palestinians. Um, and over the over the past few decades, it does not appear that any substantive progress has been made towards a two-state solution. Uh, and in fact, we will argue in next week's podcast that a two-state solution is pretty much out of reach or would not work uh, and that in some format a one-state solution uh, is the only thing that that could realistically work going forwards. Um, but one of the main reasons that a two-state solution has increasingly uh, fallen out of reach is because of the increased pace of Israeli settlements uh, under the government of, of Benjamin Netanyahu, um, which has increased the pace of Jewish settlement in the occupied uh, West Bank territories. Uh, and this has made a two-state solution almost impossible to achieve uh, because the territory which is actually under the control of a Palestinian authority has become so fractured over the last few decades uh, that it seems impossible to conceive that they would uh, be able to, to form uh, the basis of a functioning territorial state. Uh, there is, of course, the possibility that Israel decides to withdraw uh, settlers from those regions or evacuate uh, settlers from occupied Palestinian territories uh, and return the West Bank as a whole to Palestine. Um, there is some precedent for that. Uh, in 2004 or five, I believe, uh, Israel decided to remove all of the Jewish settlers who had settled in the Gaza Strip uh, and return it to Palestinian administration. Um, but the difficulty is that the scale of it in the West Bank is entirely different. Uh, there were not that many Jewish settlers in Gaza. There are, as we've said, hundreds of thousands Uh, in the West Bank, and because um, any kind of coalition building in Israel's parliament, the Nasser, involves right-wing and far-right parties, uh, it's not a move that I think any uh, major Israeli political party would take because it would alienate those parties and they need them to form successful coalitions. So uh, that settlement building uh, and the extension or the steady creep of Israel's boundaries uh, eastwards into the West Bank is something that has continued over the last few decades Uh, and does seem to put any solution to the violence further out of reach. Absolutely and
0: we're running short of time uh, which is why we decided to split this into two podcasts and next week we will discuss uh, solutions in the broadest terms and uh, sort of modern goings-on and what can be done and positions that are taken on this but if you could boil down the last hour of history and take one lesson from it
1: what do you think that would be? A lot of the arguments by both Palestinians and Israelis about this conflict center on ideas of who was here first or who owns the land on a historical or or a religious basis. Um, And my view on this is much like disputes about, you know, whether Muslims belong in India, uh, as we discussed with the BJP episode uh, two weeks ago, it fundamentally does not matter who was there first. Uh, The debate and the policy and the solutions have to be based on who is there now Um, and given that Palestinians exist in the West Bank um, the Israeli argument that we were here first we own it doesn't really make sense there are Palestinians there now you can't have a solution uh, short of short of genocide uh, if you want it to be Israel from the river to the sea and equivalently um, claims that Palestine should exist from the river to the sea the only way you could implement that given that there are Israelis there now, is again a total genocide. Um, so any solutions to this, this crisis, uh, though it is, is a conflict which is massively unequal uh, and massively weighted in favor of Israel, any solution to this crisis has to take account of who is there now, uh, and not purely who has a religious or a historical right to the land thank you so much
0: for listening as we said at the beginning this week's episode has just been the history of the situation and we haven't had time to really unpack the key themes and the key lessons that we can draw from it Uh, so please do join us next week when we do that in the intervening period obviously things will happen and we don't know what hopefully you'll all get a chance to to listen to this to share uh this week's episode and to develop whatever opinion it is you happen to have uh, on this issue based on what's been said there are any specific sort of subtopics within this this issue that you'd like us to discuss if there are any specific questions you have from the history you've just heard or from things that happened this week please do not hesitate to get in touch with us you can get in touch with us via twitter at underscore theviolet underscore you can email contact.theviolet at gmail.com or you can go straight to our website Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you again next week.